That's Mrs. Maisel leading us into the final week of April. It is post-draft week, and we're also approaching the 100-day countdown to the start of college football. That starts on May 16th, so that'll be when I start my top 100 teams countdown, one team per day, previewing the top 100 teams in college football for 2019. Also, the best player at each jersey number. Uh, That'll start actually the next day with jersey number 99 going down to 1. So that starts on May 17th. Andrew Doughty here on the High Motor Podcast. Thanks for checking out the show this week. Uh, It's not as entertaining as the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, but I'll have some good stuff still. Uh, I wasn't expecting to like Maisel, but it is absolutely spectacular. It's probably the the most well-written show I've ever seen. Yeah, there are a couple lulls. I think it takes a few episodes to like some of the secondary characters but it's just so so solid and you know speaking of which I'm gonna have a couple of showbiz guests coming up uh, one here in a few weeks and then one uh, hopefully another one that I'm in the process of right now of trying to lock down uh, that'll be the last week of May or the first week of June hey also quickly next week on the show Mark Madsen is gonna drop by if you missed it Mark Madsen is jumping from the NBA uh, bench to college. He's a new head coach at Utah Valley after Mark Pope left for BYU. So that'll be next week, Monday, May 6th. Come back for that one. Mark Madsen on the High Motor Podcast, Monday, May 6th. Okay, it is post-draft week, 256 picks. Seven rounds later, the draft is done. I'm going to have NFL draft analyst Daniel Parlagreco on the show in a bit. He's going to help put a bow on the draft. A few things I want to ask him there, Daniel Jones, uh, Devin Bush, defensive line, a bunch of good stuff. But before him, I have some other good stuff. There were some college football coaches teleconferences last week for the spring, wrapping up spring practice. And I wanted to ask several coaches the exact same question. I wanted to ask them a question about the transfer portal. We're coming up here. Uh, well, not quite until it wasn't introduced until last October, so we're still in the first year of it. Uh, but this fall will be the first full year done of the transfer portal. So I asked seven head coaches basically the same question. They were Mike Gundy, uh, Philip Montgomery from Tulsa, Tom Herman, Les Miles, Randy Etzel of UConn, Lincoln Riley and then Luke Fickle from Cincinnati. Like I said, almost one year into the new portal system, getting a lot of attention. So I want to just kind of plop together as many opinions as I could. So before Daniel and I talk some draft stuff, you're going to hear from those seven coaches. I'm just going to let the audio speak for itself. I edit out my questions uh, because really they're the same questions over and over, different coaches, same follow-ups. And the question is simple. You know, as coaches go through the first year of the transfer portal, what are their thoughts? What are their likes, their dislikes? What do they want to see changed? I posted some of those comments on Herosports.com last week as I was going through those teleconferences, uh, including Mike Gundy, who wasn't particularly thrilled to be talking about it again. And understandably, I think he said religion, politics, and the transfer portal. No matter what you say, you're going to get a reaction from people. And he seems to be definitely in the group that's annoyed by the the portal, annoyed by the process of the mass transfers, uh, annoyed by how the NCAA went about implementing it. But I'll let that audio speak for itself. And and generally, it seems like these coaches clearly understand how much more difficult transfers are making their job. I mean, you're already constructing an 85 scholarship roster, plus what, 25 to 
40, 45 walk-ons. I remember a couple of years ago, Willie Fritz, uh, Tulane head coach, he told me, joking, well, I assumed he was maybe half joking, half serious, that he always wishes he, he picked up a basketball to coach instead of football. His dad was an athletic director. His brother is a successful high school basketball coach. And he said that he, he wished he had done with basketball and had 12, 15 guys on the roster instead of 120, 130. You're dealing with one-tenth the number of players. I can't even imagine having to deal with the roster situation in college football. That's kind of like this weekend when people brought up how many guys went undrafted and wondering if the NCAA should put a rule in place to make them eligible to come back. I would be in favor of that. I cannot even imagine how difficult that would be for coaches. I also think that would put recruits and other committed transfers in a difficult spot. Kids that work... uh, guaranteed a scholarship spot. I mean, we hear all the time about about schools that are revoking scholarships from from players or if it's a committable offer. If a school makes an offer to a prospect, can he commit to it? Or is it just out there and they need to know if he's actually interested before he commits? So they can make it extremely difficult on both coaches and players. I would like to see them not lose their eligibility if they did want to come back, but because of the college football calendar, because it's so different than basketball, even though the basketball draft is later, and you only have, what, four months there before you... I guess it's almost the same. Because right now with the draft, you only have four months before the, the season starts. So now that I think about it, it's the exact same. The NBA draft is two months later, but the season is ending later. There's just fewer scholarship players on that roster. So I think it make it extremely difficult. I would love to see players still be eligible if they weren't drafted. But I think it would make it even so much harder. The portal has made it a lot harder on coaches, which tough. You're making five, six million dollars a year. That's your job. So again, you're going to hear from seven coaches consecutively, uh, just a minute or two apiece. First, it's going to be Mike Gundy. Then it'll be Philip Montgomery. Third is Tom Herman. Fourth is Les Miles. Fifth is Randy Etzel. Sixth is Lincoln Riley. And seventh is Luke Fickle. All right, let's get rolling the High Motor Podcast with some transfer talk. You know, my, my feeling on it is uh, is religion, politics, and the portal. I mean, I, I don't even think it's worth commenting on because you're going to get such a mixed reaction from people across the country. And um, I don't think anybody knew the direction it was going when it was put in place. And I think it's a dangerous thing. I think there are a few things that are positive, but I think the majority of it is danger unless the NCAA changes the opportunity for coaches to manage roster numbers based on the 85 scholarships that we have. As it speaks right now, we can't handle the roster changes. We can't predict them, and we can't make up for them based on the way the rules are. So they have failed to address and and put in place ways for us to manage our roster based on the current portal situation. So um, honestly, this is probably be the last time I ever speak about it just because uh, I, I don't I don't think that it's it's something that's that's uh, been thought through and um it's an it's a no win situation either way yeah i mean it's a it, it's been an adjustment that's for sure i think for me personally I, I would like to see it to where leaving it open and allowing guys to transfer that's great i think we really have to address what what it's going to do and how it's going to affect your apr those measurements and how guys are leaving and and moving on it's going to affect all of those things and and i think we ought to put a blanket rule in there uh, to some shape or form to say, okay, if you want to transfer, that's great. Uh, but if you do transfer, everybody's going to sit a year. And uh, if you graduate from the university, then you get your year back uh, at the at the back end of that deal. Uh, I think that would help 
not only us as coaches, I think it would help, um, you know, the NCAA and, and some of the things that are happening right now where you're trying to make judgments on this guy or that kid and, and the reasons why they're transferring. If you just made a blanket statement to say uh, you transfer, you're going to sit a year. And uh, if you graduate from the university that you transferred to, uh, you get that year back on the end. And uh, I think that would be a beneficial uh, agreement on, on both ends. Just make it simple and easy. If you want to transfer, that's great. Uh, you know, obviously we, we're not putting any stipulations on you. Um, but I think there's just so much in the middle there of trying to figure out you know, what really is going to be uh, passed as far as the waiver part goes. And I think if you just said everybody's going to sit a year and you get the year back on the back end of it, uh, I think that'd be fair all the way across the board. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think anything that, you know, helps and, and favors our student-athletes is, is for the, the good. I think, um, you know, we we have not taken anyone yet, I don't believe, from the quote portal. We've, we've got um, a grad transfer set to come in from, from Georgia Tech. But um, I, I – I, I guess the, the only thing I, I would say is, you know, if, if the kids uh, wanted it and, and um, they felt it was it was necessary, great. Um, it's a little alarming the rate that um, we're giving out the the uh, waivers uh, for immediate eligibility. But um, again, whatever is best for a student athlete, I think we're we're all in favor of. The ease of transfer is, is is the only thing that I question. I think that there's a number of um, people that really are transferring, you know, out of the, um, you know, not out of necessity. And I I think the I think it makes I think it makes the um, I mean as one of the last statistics I saw that 25 percent of all of college has put their name in for the transfer portal. And then actually transferred were 13%. Now, I don't know that those are exactly the statistics, but they're close. And I just think it changes football so much. I mean, you 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 learn I, I, uh, an allegiance, you learn an identity, you like your team, and then and what the heck for the last year? I'll, I'll go. Uh, I'll go. I'll take a take a flyer, or maybe it'll be the last next two years. Uh, so I, uh, I I think there's a, a quality reasons to to transfer, and I think the certainly the senior that just graduated and and is looking for an opportunity. I see that as very, um, you know, very uh, likely a, a good reason. And then uh, you know, if if a young man um, had other you know extenuating circumstances, I think that the, those things are what that's for. Um, the ease of transfer is—I uh, don't know that that's the. I think it's wonderful for the player. I don't know that it's great for the coaches. I think it's great. You know, I think it's—I uh, think it's great that the NCAA has given these kids the opportunity, and the rules are what they are. And, if kids want to take advantage of them, um, you know, they have the opportunity uh, to do that. So, um, you know, I do, uh, you know, it's the, it's the world we live in now, and uh, no sense uh, complaining about it, no sense uh, 
you know, trying to fight it because you really don't have a say in the matter anyhow. So, um, you know, it's just uh, it's what we we have to live with. And now what they ought to do is they ought to just pay the players and, um, you know, be done with it because that's basically we're professionalizing everything that we're doing. So, um, like I said, I have no problem with it. Players want to look to move on. They, they have that right and can do that. And, you know, they hire a lawyer and they can get a waiver, um, you know, they can get a waiver through. You know, you don't hire a lawyer, you probably don't get your waiver to go through, but you hire the lawyer and you can get some to go through. So it is what it is. And, you know, you just uh, work to do the best you can, you know, with the kids that you have and develop them and make them the best people, best students and best athletes you can. Yeah, it's honestly probably a little early to say. I think we're all still in some sense getting getting used to it. I think sometimes the effects of such a big change like that are it takes some time to maybe fully understand it. But I do think, I, I mean, I think there's some positives of it. Uh, it's alarming how many people are in there. It's also, I still, the one part about it I still have a hard time with is that you don't have to come tell your coach if you're going to get in it. I mean, I just, any job in the world, if, if you're going to, leave or go take another job this and that you it's the right thing that to, to go tell the people that you that you work for the people that are heads of the department that you work for whatever just common respect courtesy that you that you had those conversations i think it's part of the growing process i mean we're here to educate and help grow young men yet we don't you know put them in a position where they've got to make grown man choices and have grown man talks and so um uh, that that part to me is still a little perplexing but I mean, I think it's done some good things for for players' rights and allowed guys, if they do want to transfer, to to have that option. And, you know, I think it's something that hopefully will continue to evolve and tweak it and and, uh, continue to make it better for everybody. Well, there's going to be a lot of changes. I mean, uh, I don't know what they are, but there needs to be. And uh, whatever that is, we just got to get a grasp on it um, because it's – I don't think it's good. It's not good for college football. It's not good for – for kids, it's not good for the NCAA. I mean, just, there's just so many gray areas right now. We don't know what's going on. Um, so I, I can't even begin to know exactly what they're going to do. Um, but to be honest with you, it's you know it's a little bit of a storm right now, and, and the NCAA does not have a very good grasp and handle on on how to do this thing right now. When let's be honest, when they make the two most uh, high-profile kids in the country immediately eligible for whatever their reason is and then can tell some other kid that he's not it's they're in some ways playing i don't want to say god but they're in some ways just dictating what they believe is the best thing without you know true hardline um you know parameters you know they can all say well we have parameters but the reality is there aren't any parameters and uh, so it's really it's really gray right now, and for us in college football, we gotta we gotta really get a grasp on this. And we've made the bed this year, so I think we need to kind of finish it out this year and and not hold people back because it's gonna get it's gonna be a black eye on college football. Um, but moving forward, we got to do a really good job of figuring out what what it is that we want. <laughs> Joining the show is Daniel Parlagreco to help us put a bow on the 2019 NFL Draft. Daniel, thanks for, for talking again, and I want to start here with Daniel Jones. Dave Gettleman, he was either on, on Saturday or Sunday morning, he said that he knew for a fact that Jones 
would have been gone before 17. Some people have refuted that. I know Benjamin Albright was among those who said he spoke to multiple people who just said that's not true, that, that Daniel Jones would not have been gone before 17. And let's just pretend that, that Gettleman is talking out of his ass again. He's trying to build up this fake interest for a guy he already took. So let's pretend that, that Gettleman is wrong in that. If the Giants don't take Daniel Jones at 6 or at 17, I mean, where does he fall? What was your grade on him? Is he even a, a first-round pick? I know it's hard to project who might have come up for him and, and grades elsewhere, but where was he on your board? If the Giants aren't taking him at 6 or 17, how far does he fall? Is he all the way into the second round, if not farther? I think so. The thing with Daniel Jones is, you know, you'll hear you'll hear people say if you really, really love a quarterback, you know, you take him, you take him, you don't think necessarily based on value. It's hard for us to think, you know, as far as, you know, we look at the draft and we grade the draft based on value and based on what we think that player should have went. But if they absolutely loved him and he was their guy, then it's hard to fault him too much for that. Do I think it's a little bit rich for Daniel Jones? Absolutely. Um, I'm not as big a fan of him. I think you can't question the toughness. The guy is smart. He's tough. Um, Obviously, he's got a great NFL background with some good coaching with Cutcliffe. Um, The question with Daniel Jones is he's very limited as far as potential. You know, there's not a very high ceiling on the guy, um, you know, playing in that New York weather, cold weather climate. Is he going to struggle throwing the ball outside? You know, obviously, there's questions about his arm strength. Um, you know, I just think you're kind of with, with Daniel Jones, you know, the thing that kind of caught me off guard is the fact, um, you know, that they're saying they don't want to start him right away, you know, and that's, that's the one thing about Daniel Jones, in my opinion, that's good about him is he's ready to go. He's ready to go right away. You know, he's got NFL coaching for a few years now. And, um, if you're going to draft a kid like him, you want to start him right away, especially when you have a situation with Eli where obviously they've struggled offensively the last few seasons. So, um, I, I don't see, uh, what they were doing there, um, but obviously they love the guy. When when it was happening, and we kind of because back when when Jones even last or last couple of years, I think everyone really agreed that yeah, this guy could be an NFL quarterback, and then he just starts moving up, moving up onto day two. And then all of a sudden, we're talking top ten. I can't remember. Uh, maybe it was Charles Robinson or some NFL analyst said that he he knew for a fact that Daniel Jones was QB one on some teams' boards, and it, it kind of brought me back to 2013 and Ryan Nassib. Remember when we were talking about him as an NFL quarterback, and then all of a sudden Doug Marone gets the Bills job, and then they're projecting him to the Bills. I think they might have had also the sixth pick or the seventh pick, and uh, he 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 doesn't go whatever they had six or seven. He doesn't go, and I think he went in like the third or the fourth round back in 2014. And yeah, it only takes one team to like him, but how much do you think uh, overconfidence, maybe arrogance is the right word, how much do you think that plays into the equation? And we're completely speculating here because nobody outside of of the Giants organization knows exactly the exact reasons why they took him, how they planned to turn him from a decent college quarterback into a franchise quarterback. You know, I kind of mentioned this a couple of weeks ago when people were talking about Maybe should the draft be moved before free agency? And and how I started wondering how would that impact teams' decision in free agency if the draft was was first? You know, if a guy, if a team took a guy on day three or took a couple receivers, how much does arrogance and overconfidence? And yeah, we can develop this guy. Maybe we needed a receiver, we would have grabbed him in free agency, but we got a couple of guys on day three. So, I mean, if you're following my logic here, how much does this overconfidence and arrogance play when? When you're taking a guy like Daniel Jones, who, yeah, he can play right away, but maybe all the tools aren't there and you're relying so much on measurables, I think the Giants just 
overshot that, and whether it's Pat Shermer or somebody else t- telling Dave Gettleman, yes, this is a top 10 guy, do you think that there's any level of arrogance there? Yeah, I think so. I think, to me, what it, what it signals to me, obviously, kind of as you alluded, is the fact that, um, you know, we don't know exactly what went on behind closed doors. But generally what happens in a case like this is there's discrepancies between the scouting department and the coaching staff. So what I think happened here is the coaching staff was heavily influenced, whether that was Cutcliffe, whether that was, you know, Eli stepping in. You know, I don't obviously think they're going to take too much with Eli, but I think uh, having prior, you know, experience working with the coaching staff with Duke, um, I think those things influence them greatly, thinking they know what they're going to get from a mental side, you know, knowing that this guy can pick up the offensive playbook really quickly. I think they were influenced too much by that rather than looking at the actual uh, physical qualities of the player and really looking at, you know, whether this guy can really grow and become an NFL quarterback. I mean, you look at his stats. I mean, just the stats alone, if you've never seen the guy play, you'd say, wow, this guy wasn't even one of the best quarterbacks you know, in this conference, struggled against the better defenses in the ACC. I don't know. I, I think there's 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 skills there to work with. I just think that you're dealing with a guy that's limited physically, but then he also has serious serious decision making questions. I mean, you you watch the tape and he just throws brutal interception after brutal interception. You know, so I don't agree with the pick whatsoever. I think they really could have. I would have been shocked if he wasn't there with their 17th pick and, and if they slid down a little bit and he wasn't around to pick up some additional picks. Let's shift gears. Uh, each year with the draft, I don't know about you, but I like to look for trends in players' positions, uh, teams favoring certain positions more from one year to the next, one decade to the next, however you want to measure it, You know how the league, how the game is evolving. And I can't remember last time when you were on the show a couple of months ago if we talked about um, you know th- this desire and this premium for interior defensive linemen who can move really well, very nimble, very mobile, disrupt the passer from the inside, and we just don't have like the nose guards anymore, the nose tackles anymore. Like there's no Gilbert Brown in the league anymore, and even if there is a, a Gilbert Brown, a Pat Williams type of players, there's no premium on on them anymore. You know, now it's Quinn and Williams. It's teams trying to find the next Aaron Donald, teams trying to find a more uh, passing disruptive and dominant Sue. Do you think that's the way the, the NFL is permanently headed and we're just not ever going to see a teams put a real top 10, top 15 pick premium on these just these true run-stuffing defensive tackles moving forward? I think so. Um, I think the closest thing we got, obviously, was Dexter Lawrence. I think he... He can be that guy. The Giants tend to like that have have that guy that can play over center, that can uh, you know the play two gap. Um, there's some teams in the NFL I think that are more of an old school style. You know, you think about guys, teams like in the uh, AFC North, like the Steelers and and the Ravens and, and and even the Giants to some extent. You know, they like having that big guy in the middle to, to, plug, to plug up the uh, the defense. So I think for the most part, I think teams now, they don't want two down defensive linemen. What they want is they want rotational pieces that can come in and out of games quickly. Teams are playing more high tempo, obviously a lot more passing. Um, you want guys that can move, they can play three down. So whether they're playing a first down or third down, they can still get after the quarterback. It's more or less you want guys, even from those interior positions, that can play the run on the way to the quarterback, not just run-stuffing players. And I think that's where a lot of defensive coaching staffs are headed, and they're looking for guys that can be of influence on all three downs. So you were pretty high on Devin Bush uh, coming into the draft. 
Uh, he ended up going number 12 to the Steelers, or excuse me, number 10 to the Steelers. They move up. They didn't pay a whole lot. They, they just flipped picks with the Broncos. Broncos got 20. And then I believe they got the second rounder and then a third rounder in 2020, if, if I'm saying that correctly. So they didn't give a whole lot to move up 10 picks in the first round, which, like, if you look last year, for example, how much the Saints gave uh, the Packers to move up and grab Marcus Davenport. So they didn't g- give a huge price there. So I think that we can probably all agree whether or not you are high on Devin Bush, uh, that the price wasn't that big. Uh, but the fact remains is that Devin Bush is still an, an off-ball linebacker, and yeah, we saw two inside linebackers taken in the top 10 this year uh, when a lot of people around the league are saying that, uh, talking about premium, that they're not focusing as much on, on a position like that. And yes, they didn't give up a ton, but still trading up and taking an off-ball linebacker number 12, or excuse me, number 10, even if you like Devin Bush a lot, do you think they gave up too much and, and put too much of a premium on a player like him at number 10? a good question i i would say i would say no because i love the player um am i influenced by a little bit by the fact that i love the player so much probably um i agree with what you're what you're saying in regards to your question you know is an off-ball linebacker how quick you know how much is he going to influence every single down um to that angle i would say yes for me at the same time you know looking at it from a gm standpoint i'd have a hard time trading up for anybody unless i was a quarterback you know especially this high in the draft but you also have to, as you mentioned, you also have to think about the fact that this year a lot of teams were trying to get out, meaning there wasn't really huge discrepancies based on pick five or base 25, you know, pick 25. So teams were trying to get out of their picks and pick up additional picks. So what that ultimately led to was there really wasn't a lot of value, which also meant that you can move up a few spots for hardly anything. So from that point uh, of view, then it really wasn't, a terrible trade for the Steelers to move up and get Bush if he's a guy they really, really love. I mean, I personally like him better than White, who went a few picks earlier than him. I think he's a guy that can influence um, to some extent more just because you can do more with him. He's a chess piece. He moves better. He's a better lateral mover. Um, I, I mean, I love the kid Bush. I think the Steelers got a heck of a player, and um, I think he's going to make their defense so much more athletic um, which is really going to help their defense. Kind of a guy that they haven't had in a long time as their defense has aged. I know that when I was watching it, when they traded up, I didn't necessarily know who they were going after. I thought it maybe was Bush. And you make the pick, and I think my reaction was something like I was surprised. And you say, okay, I mean, it is Devin Bush. I mean, I'm not, you can't criticize the pick. Yeah, it seems high. Were you surprised when they move up and then take a guy like that? Or because you love Bush so much, there was no surprise at all? No, I guess I wasn't overly surprised. I guess from my standpoint, when I when I see a team trading up, generally this time in the draft, it's, oh, man, maybe they love one of these quarterbacks. That's usually my first instinct, you know. But, no, I don't think so. I think they've been looking for a guy to, to replace Ryan Shazier. I think, you know, you think about an athletic chess piece like Shazier that really influenced their defense so much and was so good for those couple of years that he was there before the injury. Um, I think Bush can almost replace that, you know. How about talk about level of surprise? Number four, the Raiders taking uh, Cleveland Farrell. That I literally jumped off off of my off, off the couch because I was so shocked by that. What was your level of shock on a scale of one to ten that the Raiders end up going? It kind of the, the same deal there. I mean, I think we can all agree that Farrell is a, a hell of a defensive end. He's going to be a guy that could be you know a multi-time Pro Bowler, but still at number four, I was absolutely floored. What was your level of shock on on a scale of one to ten? Honestly, I really wasn't shocked. I would say maybe three I really wasn't that shocked to be honest just because of the fact that I tend not to read too much of the hype and too many things going into the couple of weeks before the draft so Farrell's a guy that I've had top 10 on my board during the whole pre-draft process 
Um, and I think sometimes we're too influenced as fans. We're too influenced by things we hear leading up to the draft where, you know, NFL guys or you know, supposed NFL guys, really what they are is TV personalities, where they have guys on their board. And we tend to equate what they have on their board to what NFL teams have, which is just simply not the case. And I think and a lot of NFL teams had Farrell a lot higher than maybe what the TV personalities had. So I think you have to account for those things. And really, as we saw throughout this whole draft, is this was just another instance of this draft more than any that I can remember. The grading, the grading systems were just all over the place with these players, with all these different teams, with you know between the TV personalities, between the individual teams. There was really no agreement on too many of these players in the draft. I mean, you think about the middle and the end round. I mean, some of these guys. I mean, I evaluated 300 something guys, 315 guys, and there was a lot of guys even on, you know, early day three that I was like, I had never even heard of the player before. So it just goes to show you that, you know, these teams, some of these teams just uh, feel completely different than one another. Yeah, absolutely. And I had Thor Nystrom on the show a couple of weeks ago, and he does, you know, a top 500. I think you said something like 315. Most, you know, guys that grind the film are in like that 250 to 350 range. He did 500, and I think he mentioned – Sometime on day three that a couple of the guys that weren't even in his top 500 went. I know when Trey Pipkins, the kid from Sioux Falls, went in the third round, there was a lot of shock there, even Titus Howard. Uh, a lot of disagreements on if he'd go in the you know, first, second, third, or fourth. All right, Daniel, I'll let you go here. Daniel Parlagreco dropping by the High Motor Podcast to wrap up the 2019 NFL Draft. You can find him on Twitter at DTP Draft Scout. Hey, Daniel, thanks for the time. I uh, always love chatting and take care. Oh, thanks, guys, very much. I appreciate being on. So the NFL Draft heads to Las Vegas next year. Three days in Vegas. I believe it's April 23rd to the 25th. Uh, you know, I was trying to figure out this week where the draft will actually be held in Vegas. Will it be at T-Mobile? Will it be somewhere outdoors? Uh, Fremont Street? But unless I'm just not seeing it here, and I didn't make any phone calls or dig any deep on this. It was just a quick search. Unless I'm just not seeing it, it appears that they're still going through potential locations, or at least they're not saying what they're looking at, which seems kind of bizarre only a year out. Uh, but maybe they do other location. I think Fremont Street would be a hell of a lot of fun. I don't know how you would do it outside on the Strip. Maybe there are some locations. Hey, again, next week, Mark Madsen, new Utah Valley uh, head coach. I want to talk to him about the transition to the college. I also want to talk to him about his, his NBA career. Uh, a lot of stuff to get to there. Send any questions for him, any mailbag questions for Mark Madsen to at High Motor Pod on Twitter. In the meantime, before that drops, check out past episodes on iTunes, Spreaker, Stitcher, everywhere else. Again, on Twitter at High Motor Pod. And thanks again to Daniel for his time this week. Thanks again to all those coaches for a few minutes of their time getting their thoughts on the transfer portal. And thanks to all of you for checking out the High Motor Podcast. Please come back next week. This is the High Motor Podcast on the Hero Sports Podcast Network. I saw a friend today, it had been a while And we forgot each other's names But it didn't matter cause deep inside The feeling still remained the same We talked of knowing one before you've met And how you feel more than you see and other worlds that lie in spaces in between.